0: The Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. I'm Mika. And in this podcast, I, an aspiring history nerd, try and teach music history to my wife, who does not know or care all that much about it.
1: I care about it a little (laughs) bit.
0: Well, that ruins the premise of my intro. You're an
1: (laughs) actual history nerd.
0: We need to standardize that intro at some point. I just kind of wing it every time.
1: I just think you're a real nerd.
0: Fair. <laughs> that, you're supposed to be on this podcast to compliment me. I'm not sorry. insult me. Yeah, it's, the it's opposite. not a bad thing. You're fired.
1: Oh. Well, Alright, that's it. Bye everybody.
0: <laughs> Alright. Well, before we get into the actual like history, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping or, I don't know, non-music history related stuff, podcast related stuff. Uh first, if you hear stuff in the background, that would be our cats. We'll post a picture of them on our social media and I am sorry about the background noise they constantly have, and it definitely will happen again, because they are ridiculous.
1: He's eating a lint roller paper right now.
0: Cool. So this is Editor Nick chiming in. Uh, We lost a little bit of the audio on this part, I don't know why, but basically I am telling you to follow our social media accounts. It's Sound of History on Facebook, and then Sound of History with an underscore at the end on Twitter. At the end, which I hate but you know <laughs> can't do anything about it Guess the per- i
1: should go follow those too yeah probably <laughs> yeah
0: the person with the actual sound of history without an underscore hasn't tweeted in ever and they follow one account that hasn't tweeted in three years so do those ever ridiculous. expire they're supposed to and twitter's like rule is they will make it expire if the people don't log in. So you have to log in to keep it going. Oh. Oops. So either Twitter's lying or that person just keeps logging in every few months and doing nothing.
1: To follow that one blog. Exactly. Stuff. Okay.
0: So we have that. Follow our social media. That's where we'll keep you updated with all the stuff that's happening. And two, I just want to give a little three. bit of... Oh, this is three. This oh, yeah. One was the cats. cats. That was cats not are planned. Always first. <laughs> so three... Uh, I just want to give a little bit of a shout out, I guess, to some people who have helped us out quite a bit when we're getting started here, because starting a podcast isn't really the easiest thing. There's a whole lot of stuff that you don't even think about until you have to do it, and you don't know how to do it. So special shout out to my friend Jacob, who is a part of the What's, What's Your Spaghetti Policy podcast. They started their podcast a few months before we started this one, so they had a little bit of expertise in how to get everything going. So I have reached out to him a lot and he's been very helpful. So go listen to those guys. It's a very fun, entertaining podcast.
1: They're funny.
0: They are funny. <laughs> and also special shout out to the earfloss music history podcast. Mm-hmm. Cause they reached out to us on Twitter and got us plugged into this really cool group of music based indie podcasters that have been really helpful. So if you follow us on Twitter, you'll see us retweeting and engaging with a lot of, Earfloss and also all of those other podcasts. So yeah, go do that. And then check out all of those cool music-based podcasts.
1: So much music.
0: (laughs) Okay, now we're going to get into music history. Last time we talked about minstrelsy, and it quickly became Mika's favorite music genre of all time.
1: I was very uncomfortable and still am very uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You want to give us a little bit of a recap on what minstrelsy and minstrel shows were? Oh, gosh. Just brief.
1: Okay, so um, white people in America were not creative, and the best that they could do to come up with um, music was to make fun of African American people, and they would go perform in blackface and act really stupid and be like, this is African American music, and then um, yeah...
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, good summary. And as is Frederick Douglass called it, it's the scum of white people who stole a pigment that they don't have and then used it for profit.
1: Whoa.
0: <laughs> well, we're back in the world of minstrelsy today. Yay. Which sucks. I mean, it's not fun. It's not a fun genre to talk about. And we'll talk about some fun ones later on in this podcast. This one's not one of them. But as someone on Twitter said, it is important to talk about. You can't just sweep it under the rug. Like You have to face the bad things in our past, and learn from them. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a more in-depth look at two of the biggest names of that time period. They're two of the biggest celebrities in minstrelsy, Stephen Foster and the Christy Minstrels. They go hand in hand. Stephen Foster is definitely more important, but you can't talk about one without talking about the other one.
1: And Christy was a last name and not a person named Christy Minstrels, which (laughs) is still disappointing to me.
0: We're going to start out with Stephen Foster, because he's much easier to handle, and I think he's the much more important person. Do you know anything about Stephen Foster? Do you think you've heard any of his songs? No,
1: I don't think... Uh, I I really have a hard time remembering even the names from last week and pairing the names with the stories, so...
0: You remembered Christy.
1: Just because I messed that up (laughs) the first time I heard it. That's all. Yeah,
0: I think... I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to say you've heard at least one of Stephen Foster's songs. Okay. Like, you're going to hear it, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I know that song.
1: Is it the Dixie song?
0: No. Oh, okay. Dixie wasn't one of his. We talked about that last time.
1: I know. I'm telling <laughs> you, I don't remember the, like, things I'm that happened I'm not doing a good the job, name. then. No, my brain just will not <laughs> remember the names.
0: <laughs> Stephen Foster is known, probably rightfully so, as the father of American music. He was the United States' first internationally known musician. He wrote over 200 songs, and is widely known as the most famous songwriter of the 19th century. He is a legendary figure in the world of American popular music. Foster was born on July 4th, which is kind of appropriate, 1826, near the, I'm going to mess this up, Allegheny, Allegheny uh, some river in Lawrenceville, Pennsylvania, All right. just east of Pittsburgh. He was the ninth of 10 children, but the 10th died as an infant. So Stephen was basically the baby growing up. According to some accounts, his father was a politician and businessman who tried his hand at real estate but failed and left the family close to financial ruin. As we'll learn, especially with a lot of these earlier figures, you kind of have to take a lot of the accounts with a grain of salt because there's like various accounts for a bunch of different stuff. So no one knows for sure what his dad did, but that was like the one account I could find. Okay. Okay. There was no tax-supported public education when he was growing up, so he alternated between basically homeschool and private tutoring.
1: Yeah, homeschoolers. (laughs) Woo. I should probably not tie myself to this person and or homeschooling.
0: He's not the worst of the people we've talked about. All right. So if you're going to tie yourself to anyone in minstrelsy, he's an all right one, I guess.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: He always showed more interest in music than the other subjects, but he was an avid reader. He wasn't a scholar by any means, but he would have been called literate and educated for his time.
1: Good for him.
0: So basically he knew how to read. Good
1: for <laughs> that's, him. That's
0: kind of what that meant. He was never officially tutored in music growing up, but he always had a musical bent. He taught himself to play the flute, clarinet, guitar, violin, and piano.
1: He actually sounds like a pretty intelligent dude.
0: Yeah, at least musically for sure. He was a musical genius, some called call him. He would often write songs as a young boy, gathering influence from sentimental songs his sister would sing, African church services he would attend with his family servant Olivia Pice, Pice, I don't know, it's P-I-S-E, Pice, and songs sung by the song songs sung by the African laborers at the Pittsburgh warehouse he worked he worked at for a time, and of course popular minstrel tunes. So those were kind of like his biggest influences. Okay. Stephen, his brother Morrison, and his close friend Charles Shearas, who will come up again later, so remember that name.
1: I'll try my best.
0: Were members of an all-male secret club called the Knights of the ST, which oh probably stood for square table, but no one really knows. <laughs> that they, they met twice Dorks. weekly at the Foster's home. One of the principal activities was singing.
1: Playing D&D.
0: <laughs> no, singing, oh. which is a little bit worse, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> was steven acting first a song leader and then composer some of his earliest songs were composed for that group It's just kind of funny that like whenever i was researching this it was treated as a serious group but it was just like three Dude's kids hanging out, hanging out and writing singing music. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a serious group they never did anything
1: hey tell that to them they were very that's serious true about i mean it. it
0: went on to launch The first successful music career. I'd
1: say it's pretty serious I guess.
0: The other two, Morrison and Charles, never did anything in music, but whatever. Two of Foster's biggest musical influences growing up were Henry Kleber, who was a classically trained German immigrant who opened a music shop in Pittsburgh, and Dan Rice, who was an entertainer, a clown, and blackface singer who made his living in traveling circuses. Those two influences can be clearly seen in Foster's work later. There was always like a dichotomy between the minstrel songs and the more serious classic classically trained stuff. Foster had his first song, Open Thy Lattice Love, published in 1844 when he was just 18 years old. It was apparently written for singer Susan E. Robinson, who I don't really know anything about, but that's who he wrote it. That He wrote it for her to sing. This song did not bring him worldwide renown or even success in America, but it clearly showed he had promise. The song was a parlor song as opposed to a minstrel song. Do you remember right. what parlor songs I were? I do
1: remember parlor songs. I would have liked to be a part of that, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, here is Open Thy Lattice Love, sung by a guy named Fred Field.
1: Okay. Okay. Open thy lattice, love,
0: listen to me. The cool, balmy breeze is abroad on the sea. The moon, like a queen, roams her realms of blue. And the stars keep their vigils in heaven for you. Okay, that's another one. That was uh. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you think of Open Thy Lattice, love? I mean, he was 18. <laughs> I mean. It's better than anything I wrote when I was 18.
1: Yeah, I, I liked the tune. All right. I was also a little distracted by the tone of the guy who was yeah, singing it.
0: It was interesting, for sure.
1: It sounded a little, like, robotic at first, and then mm-hmm. I was like, wait, no, that's the <laughs> person. It's a
0: real person. When he was 20, Foster went to work as a bookkeeper in Cincinnati, but he never stopped writing songs. He would visit minstrel shows when they came through town and hand out his sheet music to the performers, hoping oh. that they'd... Use one of his songs in their shows.
1: You guys are my favorite band. <laughs> Look, I wrote this song for you. It
0: really is like an early exam- example of handing out mixed CDs to people in line at a concert. Very <laughs> great. It was in Cincinnati, working with his brother's steamship company, that Foster would have his first major hit. Published in 1848, Oh Susanna remains one of the <gasps> most popular American songs of all time.
1: Oh Susanna, yeah. like Oh Susanna?
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. Oh, uh,
1: Susanna. Yeah. Da, 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 da.
0: The song was first come performed.
1: Come Alabama <laughs> with Lange on my knee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Exactly. The song was first performed by a local quintet at a concert in Andrew's Eagle Ice Cream Saloon in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 11th, 1847. I love that. An ice cream saloon. Yep. Because that sounds like perfect for me. <laughs> Minstrel groups got a hold of the song and started performing it leading to many of them trying to copyright it in their own name. This led to the song being copyrighted at least 21 times oh in God. 3 years and Foster only ever earned $100 which is about 3 grand now. That's not how copyrights
1: song. are supposed <laughs> to work. No,
0: back then there was oh, the copyright system was horrendous.
1: Interesting.
0: While the publisher he sold it to made almost 10 grand on it which is about $300,000 today so yeah. rude. so like a hundred times. Do you want to li- Here's Oh Susanna. We're going to listen to it.
1: Oh, we're going to listen to someone sing it better than I can. Or can Well, you they? don't know that for sure.
0: Yeah, I don't know I don't. who's singing this one.
1: It's definitely a lot more mild. Yeah, <laughs> this one's
0: toned down for sure. Oh
1: Susanna, now don't you cry for me. That's kind of cute. Yeah. See, you knew that one. So that's one
0: Stephen Foster song, you know. I think you All might right. know another one, too.
1: Thanks, Stephen Foster.
0: Largely on the success of that song, Foster moved back to Pittsburgh in 1850 and signed a contract with Firth, Pond, and Co. as a songwriter, which made him the first professional songwriter in American history.
1: Look at him go.
0: He already had 12 compositions in print, including a massively successful song called "Nellie Was a Lady, which was being performed by the Christie Minstrels. Also in 1850, he married Jane Denny McDowell, which doesn't, I mean, yeah, he got married. (laughs) There's nothing musical about that, but sure. In 1852, they took a delayed honeymoon steamship trip to New Orleans, and that was actually the only trip to the South that Foster would ever take. Considering how often he wrote about life in the South, it's kind of amazing and a little bit sad that he only ever went there once. Like even O Susanna, he's talking about Louisiana and Alabama and all that, and he's never been, never been anywhere south of like Pittsburgh that was or Cincinnati. Oh, it's a little bit
1: harder to travel.
0: Yeah, but he worked for a steamship company. Oh, <laughs> that's He could just hop on one. Also in 1850, Foster wrote what is probably his best-known song, maybe besides O Susanna, Camptown Races.
1: Yeah. This
0: one was a straight, more traditional minstrel song, and it was popular with the Christie Minstrels and other touring groups. Here is Camp Town Races. Camp Town ladies sing a song. Do-do, do-do. Camptown race track five miles long. Oh, the do-do day.
1: Come here with my hat caved in. Do-do, do I've never heard that.
0: Come really? back home with, <laughs> with a pocket full of Probably, no, probably Ooh, just stop it day. earlier. All right. Cape to Town Races. So night. you knew that one too, right? To run day. <laughs> so yeah. that's two. You knew two of his songs. I did. It was in this period of writing for Firth, Pond and Co. With between 1850 and 1854 that Foster would see his most success. He was commissioned to write songs exclusively for the Christie Minstrels during this period, and they propelled each other to stardom. He was never good at the business side of the industry and in 1857 he sold the rights to all future songs he would write for $1900. Oh
1: dude. That yeah. seems like a decent amount for then though, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, but like I guess in this time it's 1857 and he was born in in 1826, so he's only like in his 30s and he sold his source of income for that much. And,
1: all right. Yeah, it's not a lot. Not the best business decision. Around he this time. He ta- wants to write his music. He does,
0: which it's is noble. very serious music. It's also like. About the racetrack. <laughs> he wrote other serious. Nelly Was a Lady is a pretty serious one.
1: Okay. We'll talk
0: about it, I think. But yeah, I mean, it's like he's the first professional songwriter and he's already getting screwed over by his publishing company. <laughs> it's it's pretty like pretty foreshadowing of the future of American music. Around this time, despite his success publishing minstrel show songs, Foster longed to write more serious music. He tried to convince Christie of the Christie minstrels, the group he wrote for, that there was room in the show for a different, more serious song. These songs treated the people in them more humanely and with more respect. Aww. During this time, he wrote Nelly Was a Lady, which mixed parlor songs, which was the upper class songs, with minstrelsy, which was the lower class songs. Which was, and Nelly Was a Lady was a lover's lament at the death of a slave woman named Nelly. It was tragic and humanized both Nelly and the person singing about her.
1: Oh. Yeah. I like where he's going.
0: Even though his minstrel songs were giving him a career, he longed to be known as a more serious musician, which is also going to be a theme as we go along with some of these episodes. These people writing, like, the pop music want to write more serious stuff, but that doesn't get him money. In 1852, he wrote to his publisher, As I once intimated to you, I think that's how you say that word, Inti- intempi- intimated? I don't know. I once had the intention of omitting my name from my Ethiopian, which is another word for minstrel, songs, owing to the prejudice against them by some, which might injure my reputation as a writer of another style of music. But I find that by my efforts, I have done a great deal to build up the taste for the Ethiopian songs among refined people by making the words suitable to their tastes. Okay. Yeah, so he wanted to write more serious songs, but he also thought that he had made the more serious people like minstrel songs because he made them a little bit like more refined, for better or worse. I yep. don't know. Okay. In 1854, he completed a massive project called the Social Orchestra, which is an arrangement for flute, violin, piano, and other instruments of some 73 different pieces combined including his own music, as well as music written by Mozart, Schubert, and others. It sold well, and as he had hoped, became a popular item for informal piano gatherings. But the amount of time and energy he devoted to it far exceeded any income it generated, which amounted only to a one-time fee of $150. Uh-huh. As could be expected, after his completion, he returned to writing minstrel songs, because that was what was getting him paid. In 1860, Foster moved to New York City permanently, after spending most of his life writing from Pittsburgh to be closer to his publishers. From here, his life wasn't pretty. We don't have much info about this period, but we know he was struggling with debt and alcoholism. His wife left him in 1861, and he was in debt for the rest of his life. This period of his life was full of sentimental-style songs rather than the upbeat camp town racist style that made him popular.
1: Well, yeah, he's a serious musician who just wants to write his serious music.
0: Yeah, and he's also probably depressed because he's broke. Foster was ill with a fever in 1864 and fell, cutting his neck. He would die a few weeks later with only 38 cents in his pocket and a scrap of paper that read, Dear Friends and Gentle Hearts.
1: That's all it said? Yep.
0: He was probably, like, trying to write something and he had only gotten there. Oh. Foster was pretty unique in menstrual circles in that he wasn't racist, or at least not nearly as racist as the rest of the menstrual elites. He had a sense of compassion for the subjects of his songs and sought to portray them as real people with similar hopes to white people, which, you know, is crazy, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> I can't imagine that anyone would ever pick up on that.
0: <laughs> he did not trivialize the horrors of slavery. He had the characters in his songs care for one another. He even instructed performers of his songs not to mock slaves, but to give the audience a sense of compassion for them, Aww. as seen in Nellie Was a Lady. Good for him. This different attitude maybe came from his close childhood friend, Charles Shearus, who joined the male singing club with him earlier. Remember I said to remember his name.
1: You did say that.
0: Did you remember his name?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the male singing club, though. That's
0: the most important part. Shears was incredibly active in the abolitionist movement after seeing Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison speak. Pittsburgh was also a center for the abolitionist movement at the time. Foster's friendship with Shearist and his love of Pittsburgh undoubtedly led him to a far more compassionate view of slaves than his contemporaries in the industry. All that being said, he was still exploiting them and their music, allowing the racist minstrel groups to profit from it and not speaking out against it. So, kind of a... I don't know. Like, he's not as bad, but I guess still bad. All right. Foster made it his mission to write the people's music, using vocabulary and imagery that would be widely understood by all people. For the most part, even if his songs weren't accurate to real-life experiences, he was successful in making his music accessible to everyone. He worked really hard on his songwriting. Some of of his sketchbooks show him laboring over what preposition to use at (laughs) different points. So he's the first professional songwriter, and I mean it shows, because he took it so seriously. I like it. In many ways, Foster was the archetype of what was to come in American popular music. He built on and adapted the music around him. He was exploited by industry professionals. A lot of his work was not even credited to him until much later. He was a tad morally ambiguous. He was dependent on alcohol and died young. A lot of these will be common amongst other prominent artists as we move through this history. Stephen Foster was just the first to do it.
1: That creative type.
0: (laughs) Goodness. Yep. In all respects, he was a pioneer. His contracts with publishers are the first songwriting contracts we know about, and he wrote them himself because there was nothing to go off of. There was no recorded music, no management, no radio. He was sort of just making everything up as it went along. And, I mean, didn't it didn't end that well for him, but some of his songs are still being played, so he was doing something right. <laughs> now that we've taken a look at Stephen Foster, let's dive into the Christie minstrels.
1: This is not going to be as good, <laughs> is it? No.
0: How do you feel about Steven, though? Uh, What are your thoughts after hearing about him?
1: I I think he's okay. All right.
0: Yeah, I like him, too.
1: I mean, his music isn't that great, but, you know, it's fine. What?
0: Camp Town Races is a banger. (laughs) (laughs) That could still be on the radio right now. Yep. The Christie Minstrels were the first or were the most important minstrel group in history. They weren't the first. They were the most important. They created the standard three-act performance that was adapted industry-wide. We talked about that last episode. Right. They had one of the greatest American songwriters of all time, Stephen Foster, writing for them. Edwin Pierce Christie was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1815. He refined his performing style by being a traveling blackface entertainer in the 30s.
1: So refined.
0: Oh, yeah. He began his career as a minstrel in Buffalo, New York. By 1836, he was a member of the company managed by Edwin Dean at the Eagle Street Theater in Buffalo, which is a whole bunch of names that don't come up again, so you don't need to remember them. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think you would anyway, but you don't have to try it. <laughs> He then toured upstate New York from 1843 to 1845 with a group he formed with his stepson, George. The group started using the name of the founder and became the Christie Minstrels. In 1846, they had their first performance in New York City at Palmer's Opera House. Which opera house sounds like a really fancy term for a, like a place where they show menstrual shows.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that. I'm like, wow, so fancy. <laughs> yeah,
0: go see the opera and then it's a minstrel show. Yikes. From March 1847, they ran for a seven-year stint in New York City's Mechanics Hall, which was until July 1854. And they played 2,792 performances in that seven-year period. That's a lot. I actually tried to look up Mechanics Hall to see if it was like still a theater because a lot of those old ones in New York are still Broadway theaters or whatever, but apparently it was destroyed by a fire in Mm. like early 1900s, and the site where it was is now a handbag store in Lower Manhattan. Yeah. According to Google Street View, at least. (laughs) They offered cheap family entertainment, 25 cents for adults, half that for kids. Early reviews suggest that they actually cared about how the song sounded, which was rare with minstrel groups and might be why they were more successful. <laughs> so normally, like people
1: don't want to listen to crap. Yeah. Wow.
0: Normally, minstrel shows were more about like the spectacle. Like You just go there and you see craziness, like the cakewalk yeah. and the guy who stands on his head and puts his nether extremities in the air. Yeah, the nether extremities. <laughs> but this, they actually like cared what the song sounded like.
1: You can both be crazy and sing on <laughs> tune. Well,
0: maybe not on tune, but... Try to. Okay. (laughs) Starting in 1847, the group specialized in performing Foster's works and they helped each other reach success. From the looks of it, they were one of the few minstrel groups that did not tour and stayed exclusively in New York for almost a decade. The group also contained Christie's stepson, George Christie, who is widely regarded as the greatest blackface comedian of all time.
1: Oh, good for him. Yeah,
0: super noble title to have, right? In 1851, Stephen Foster, still reluctant to be known as a minstrel writer, allowed Christie to claim writing credit for some of Foster's songs, like Old Folks at Home, which was very popular. Foster later wrote him a letter asking for the rights back. Concluded to reinstate my name on my songs and to pursue the Ethiopian business without fear or shame and lend all my energies to making the business live, at the same time that I will wish to establish my name as the best Ethiopian songwriter. But I am not encouraged in undertaking this so long as the Old Folks at Home stares me in the face with another's name on it as it was my own solicitation that you allowed your name to be placed on the song. I hope that the above reasons will be sufficient explanation for my desire to place my own name on it as author and composer. How do you think that went?
1: Yeah, he didn't get that back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We know that Christie ignored the request because until 1879, when the copyright expired, the sheet music still bore Christie's name. Christie also wrote on the back of the letter, Vacillating Skunk. So that's a pretty clear no (laughs) from Mr. Edwin Christie.
1: What an insult. In
0: 1855, both George and Edwin, who were the only actual Christies, retired from the Christie's minstrels. But the group continued on without them, still bearing the name Christie's minstrels. After retiring, Edwin Christie opened and managed a chain of opera houses called Christie's Opera Houses in several different cities across America. He's not creative at naming things.
1: really not. (laughs) Or he's just like, really wants his name out there. This boy wants fame.
0: (laughs) Christie eventually took out an injunction against his old group to stop them from using his name. Other groups would form that were able to license the name from him and continue on using it. The name Christie's Minstrels eventually became synonymous with the performance tradition of blackface minstrelsy. What a legacy. Yeah. In 1862, due to emotional distress brought on by the Civil War, Christie committed suicide by jumping from a window.
1: Wow. Well, yeah, uh,
0: <laughs> it's just not, okay. that
1: emotional distress.
0: Yeah, I don't exactly know what that means because I don't think he was, he wasn't in the war, but I guess it was just too much for him. The fact that slaves might be free was too much. Oh, Lord. In 1857, J.W. Rayner and Earl Pierce started a new group with several of the original Christie's minstrels called Rainer and Pierce's Christy Minstrels. They opened in London at the St. James Theatre. They then toured around England, staying in London for seven months and Liverpool for four months. They eventually disbanded in 1860, but the success of this group led to the phrase Christie Minstrels coming to mean basically any minstrel show. After this, four new groups were formed that each claimed to be the original Christie Minstrels because they each contained one or two members from the old group. Eventually, the most successful of these groups, which ran for 35 years in London, came to be known as Moore and Burgess's Minstrels, since Pony Moore and Frederick Burgess were the only members of that troupe that lived into the 1870s.
1: Pony Moore. Pony
0: Moore. In 1961, folk singer Randy Sparks created the New Christy Minstrels, who were incredibly influential in the folk revival of the 1960s. Their debut album won a Grammy and sat in the Billboard charts for two years. They did not perform in blackface and had no real ties to the old Christie Minstrels. But you have to wonder why they would choose that name. Yeah. Like why? Let it die. Yeah. Like why Minstrels in general? And then why like, I don't know. There's just, there's no way it could be like, oh, well, maybe they were talking about another less racist Minstrels. Like, no, <laughs> they're the Christie's Minstrels. They're okay, whatever. All right. It may be that the Christie Minstrels got lucky and had Stephen Foster writing for them. It may be that they actually cared about how their song sounded. But whatever it is, they came to define the genre of minstrelsy. Not that that is something exactly to be proud of, but back then it was a huge achievement.
1: I'm pretty sure they were pretty proud of it. Oh, yeah. It.
0: Back then they were for sure. Now, no one likes them for it. All right. So, yeah, that was the Christie's Minstrels and Stephen Foster.
1: Interesting. Uh Achievements. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think I like Stephen Foster. I think he's cool. I mean, I'll, he could have been racist. I don't know. But I didn't see anything in the thing that made me be like, he's a terrible person. He's just... He's just
1: trying. Yeah.
0: Trying his best.
1: Everyone's just trying. Yeah.
0: So with that, we are officially out of Minstrelsy. <laughs>
1: woo! 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 <laughs> woo!
0: Woo! <laughs> it's very easy to draw the line from Minstrelsy to vaudeville because they're similar... Without all the, like, overtly racial undertones. so
1: I'm really intrigued to learn more about the musical style and how that, like, became something that we're more used to seeing today. And then just leave a lot of the uncomfortableness mm-hmm. behind. Uh.
0: Yeah. I think we'll start once we get to, like, the birth of recorded music, which is happening soon. And I mean, it's already happened in real life, but in terms of our story (laughs) in the podcast (laughs)
1: clarification, I was unaware.
0: We're getting there. It happens like around the end of the 1800s. So after that, it starts looking more like the music we know now rather than just like performance based stuff.
1: I like performance based stuff, too. But
0: it's just different because like even when you look at minstrelsy, it's it's a little bit hard to define it as a genre of song because like minstrel shows weren't just songs. There was comedians, there was all sorts of stuff and vaudeville is the same way. So it's, Mm. they had songs specifically written for minstrelsy that were minstrel songs and the same for vaudeville. But like, I don't know, it's just hard to think of it as a musical genre, but it was. But once we get into recorded music, it's way easier to be like, yeah, this is a song that's meant to just be a song. It's not meant to be a part of an act. And that gets more familiar to us, I guess.
1: I'm excited.
0: All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in to the second episode. Hopefully, you'll join us again in a week or two when we talk about vaudeville.
1: Vaudeville (laughs) sounds intriguing, and I know nothing about it.
0: All right. (laughs) Thanks, guys.
1: Bye.